Hello and welcome to a bonus Caged In Conversations episode where I speak to those involved, whether it may be Nicolas Cage films or in this case, somebody who has direct access to the big man himself, Francis Ford Coppola. Of course, uh, you may have seen by the title or you may have uh, read the show notes, it is James Makoski, who is the head archivist for American Zoetrope. If you're unaware of who American Zoetrope are, it is Francis Ford Coppola's film studio. So James is uh, the man who, when, when they do restorations and stuff like that, or even if it's just looking after all the footage that Francis has there in his vaults, James is the man looking after it. So, uh, yeah, we get into a lot of stuff in here. Um, and I, it was great to talk to him, especially since there was the recent release of The Outsiders on a brand spanking new 4K release that uh, Studio Canal put out over here. And I'm probably at Warner Brothers in the US. Um, a film that was covered, what, last week on the podcast with James King. So if you haven't listened to that episode already get on over and uh, listen to it yeah it's, it's really good and oh if you are a fan of uh one from the heart oh oh yeah there's some there's some good news on this episode and if you want to listen to my episode with boyd hilton on that go back in the archives to check that out there is a fantastic bit of nugget of trivia that i love in this episode all about a certain zoetrope coffee machine uh, I hope you'll enjoy. So enjoy my conversation with James Makoski. Today, I have the absolute pleasure being joined by American Zoetrope's archivist and supervisor for all of their restorations, James Mazowski. How are you today, James? Oh, well, thank you, Petros. I appreciate it. I, I saved the absolute pressure, uh, pleasure for like Francis or the true <laughs> artist. You know, uh, I'm just I'm happy to be enjoying, joining with you. So thank you. No worries. For invite. Well, I'm honored to that anyone cares. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 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 a massive like uh, fan when like stuff I love, like especially something like The Outsiders, gets a kind of um, a new release or something gets to get seen by more eyes. And obviously, without without a man like yourself, that that possibly wouldn't have happened, and not to the kind of uh, the level of quality and detail that it has, has has been done to so no no the absolute oh, pleasure yeah. is definitely there james well the 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 nice thing about the outsiders is that we have uh, had a strong fan base because of essie hinton's novel mm-hmm. uh that she wrote uh and loved and uh, thankfully you know francis i think uh paid good tribute to to the novel and in in so much that uh, the fans have both uh, taken on uh, at the love for both the novel and, and the film, you know, there's not that many films. I, I think that you know when they're adapt, adapting a book, uh, you know, there's always problems. But I think this one always it's a state faithful, to faithful to the book, and it's one of those rare instances where it all came together. 
Well, yeah, obviously, like, I, I always love that story of how it came about that, um, well, <laughs> like yourself writing a letter to Francis to, to get the job at American Zoetrope, it was a, a petition, right, from a from a kind of school board that kind of said, hey, Francis, we love this book. Can you turn it into a film? Yeah, Joe Ellen Misaki and, you know, in, in California, in the, in the central part of California, uh, loved the book and, and, and thought, you know, Francis... She, she told me, you know, she saw Black Stallion and she thought, well, you know, that was a film of, of Francis and Zoetrope. And she thought, you know, they did a wonderful job there. You know, it would be great if Francis would do it. And so she had her students uh, write letters uh, persuading Francis. And of course, Francis always says that it doesn't take much for kids to persuade him. Anytime a kid wants him to do something, <laughs> he's uh, more than willing to do it. So. Perfect. Well, before yeah, before we get deep into what you do over at American Zootrope, I uh, just wanted to ask about like kind of your, your your beginnings and like asking you through what were the films you kind of watched when you were young that kind of made you think like that's something I want to get into. Um, and, and was it always kind of I don't know when did you kind of realize that restoration was the thing that you wanted to get into too? I didn't get into restoration until like the late nineties, you know, and it wasn't on my radar. Uh -huh. I was a weird kid. I watched <laughs> things and much probably like you uh, late at night, weird films that no one ever would see with him like driving there. It would be weird uh, B horror films uh, that would be programmed late at night. Um, and so those were, those were kind of fun to get into. Um you know, my mom uh, worked at a grocery store for 30 years, but she, the next door was a movie theater in Santa Cruz, and uh, she would get free tickets. And, she, you know, part of my thing, she would, I would get, get into mm -hmm. these movie theaters for free, and I remember, you know, watching Indiana Jones 13 times as a kid, or uh, I remember Airport 77. It was just weird things, too. Uh, Dune, I remember Dune. Now Dune's coming out uh, 40 years later, uh, but I remember seeing Lynch when waiting in line around the corner. Uh, I thought, wow, that was a weird film, but it made an impression on me. <laughs> uh, so I was eight years old when it came, and uh, that was a funny film to see as an eight-year-old kid, but mm -hmm. I still remember vividly as like sitting in the front row watching it. Uh, but, you know... Uh, 90s 90s came around and I was a student at high school student and I'm like oh, yeah, I like films and the local university UCSC was teaching a film course and my wife my girlfriend at the time said you know you should go and, and see about the program you might might like it and I took classes at the local uh, junior college and yeah that it, I, I, I there was something there and I, I enjoyed it and I Production wasn't something that was necessarily my forte, but the history side of things were good and uh, that I really responded to. And it also helped that the local community was tied into early days of filmmaking. Charlie Chaplin, Bronco Billy Anderson, Tom Mix, Mary Pippa, they all came to our area to make silent films. And that I loved. And uh, I was like, well, that, that, that'd be great. And who's teaching about this stuff? And especially local histories. And local history about when people came to town and made films in, in that area. You know, Hollywood at, in the silent area wasn't Hollywood. It could have been anywhere. It could have been Ithaca, New York. It could have been Santa Barbara. It could have been San Francisco. It, it could have been London. It could have been anywhere uh, in the world. And Hollywood wasn't really there in, in that concept. So it's fun to know that 
there's so many communities that played a, an important role in, in film history. And, and I like that about it. And, uh, and I came to, um, after I graduated from UCSC, I came to uh, England uh, because uh, East Anglia, uh, Norwich, England uh, taught uh, a class, they taught a, a degree uh, for archiving, especially regional film archiving. And that was very much of how I started, you know, with Santa Cruz and loving the, the regional film history there at East Anglia very much paid tribute uh, to, to the early days of filmmaking, especially East Anglia. And that tradition caught on in England. You got the Manchester Film Archive, you got uh, Sheffield, yeah. uh, and, and a great film archive that pays so much tribute to their early days of film history. And that's what I loved about it. And David Cleveland and, and, and Jane Elby, uh, who, who um, taught, uh, taught East Anglia, really love. Uh, they're the ones that really sort of inspired me to, to do what I'm doing today. So it all came from England. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Um, obviously, like, yeah, what, what was like the first Francis Ford Coppola film you might have seen? Like, do you remember a kind of, uh, yeah, the first of Francis? Black Stallion was one very early on that I remember seeing. It was a beautiful film. We saw that in school. Outsiders, of course, was taught. Uh, uh, I, I mentioned this before, but, you know, everyone here in the, in the States would read that in junior high. <laughs> and then at the end of the reading, you would watch that film. Uh, Godfather, certainly, I remember uh, seeing it with my mother, but that was something on television. That was course not alive when when it came out in the theaters my first introduction was on late night television uh but i remember my parents loved seeing it my grandparents loved it would talk about godfather i remember seeing godfather 3 in the movie theaters uh <laughs> so yeah uh they, they, it was always there in the in the coincidentally i didn't see apocalypse until around college i but i always saw his earlier films you know the conversation Again, was a beautiful film that was made in, in San Francisco in, in 1974. So that that uh, that's always stuck in my mind. Again, a nice, rich local film yeah. made in around San Francisco. So, so obviously, once you'd left England and kind of headed back, where's that kind of gap? Uh, yeah, what were you doing in that kind of gap before you joined American Zoetrope? To, to uh, it was a small gap, but I went to UCLA uh, Film and Television Archive for about a year or two. Uh, worked starting in shipping, uh, prepping nitrate film uh, for researchers, and did a lot of um, uh, screenings for for researchers. Uh, did a lot of Ben Hecht films, uh, had, which were great to see on the Steenbeck. Uh, such a rare opportunity to handle nitrate and and, and seeing it. So I, I was treated to a, a, a wealth of old films that no one would get to see. Uh, and then uh, went to work for the David uh, Packard uh, Stanford Theater uh, Foundation that was upstairs that was connected with UCLA and uh, worked on a lot of um, preparing uh, 16 millimeter uh, old diacetate prints from the 20s and 30s and getting them ready to be, to be restored. So, so what in your eyes, like, this may sound like an ignorant question, but what does an archiv like film archivist do? Just for those like listening who might might not quite understand what that is. Well, I, I you know, archivists are one that probably wears many hats. I wear many hats. Zoetrope, <laughs> we we sort of 
we sort of do it all that needs to be done in, in pres terms of preservation, uh, preserving a film and making sure it has proper storage uh, and it's looked after because a lot of, you know, many years these films have suffered in neglect. They were kept in closets or they were, as in UCLA, the story of the 70s that the studios were getting rid of their nitrate. And it wasn't until archivist, and that was <laughs> not really kind of a term there, but Bob Gitt and uh, Eddie Richmond and uh, saw that, you know, they're throwing out these films that there's no other, there's no negatives. They're, these are the it, you know, if we didn't take them. And so they brought them to, to campus and stored all their nitrate in campus. And so that's how the film, their archive originated. So uh, they're care we're caretakers yeah, uh, yeah. of films. And we started as collectors. A lot of film archivists were just 35 millimeter collectors uh, because they loved films and no one else were taking care of them. And so it really started out, out as, as, as the love for film and, and, and needing to, to take, take care of them. So we preserve uh, films and then eventually became uh, that with technology and things, things restoring these films, you know, uh, now that we have this collection, how do we piece them together? How do we restore them? Uh, finding other prints and, and making the very best uh, material out of it. Because, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a patchwork. These films, yeah. like The Godfather or everything, these these films were loved, the negatives were loved, and they were abused, and uh, things <laughs> were removed because of damage. So we, we assess uh, our film collections and, and make sure that the very best material are used. So people can at least uh, try to appreciate uh, them looking as best as they, they possibly can with today's technology. There's a, there's a beautiful like sadness and like romance to the idea of like, especially you talk about those times when stuff was kind of getting neglected and thrown away. And you always think of, I'm not sure if you, you're ever tinged with that sadness, probably all of the great stuff that we've, we've lost because of those times. Right. Yeah. Like there's, 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 there's always that um, worry. I always have like, there's, there's always those great movies out there that, that, that still exist that I'm never going to get to see yet, let alone those ones that kind of are lost to the sands of time, right? Yeah, well, you know, at that time, it was a, it was practicality. It was, uh -huh. it was a business. <laughs> you know, no one ever saw that these films uh, would have any staying power after it's left the movie theater. And, you know, on the silent, it made sense. There was no home video. Yes, there was exactly. very little opportunity to see it outside the theater. And so these things would just be sitting in a ball and like, well, what? it's just taking up space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, you had to move on to the next thing. So, you know, it's like Godfather, uh, the saying that it, it's it's not personal, it's it's business. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all business. And so now we're, we're we, we, you know, once home video came on, uh, it, it, it gangbusters not that long ago, 40 years, 50 years, uh, uh, where things could be shown in a different market, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're there for us all to create our own archives of the films we love right at home. Right, <laughs> Instead. right. Um, so when, like, yeah, how did how did the job at American Zootrope come about? I've, I've, I've read that you, you wrote a letter to Francis, right? Well, I wrote up to the to Zoetrope and I said, you know, uh, much like the founding of, of Zoetrope and Francis, uh, they... They didn't see themselves being a, a studio in LA or Hollywood. They wanted to be outside uh, and make their own films without anyone owning oversight of any 
studio heads. And, and so uh, I didn't see myself living in LA all my life. It was a great town, but uh, a great place to work and experience. And I still love going going back. But I my roots were in Santa Cruz. My roots were in the Bay Area, uh, in San Francisco Bay Area. And so I said, you know, if there's ever an opportunity, I, uh, this is what I do. And I would love to come up and, and, and talk to you about it. So um, it just so happened they were wrapping up Apocalypse Now Redux. Mm -hmm. And that was a rather difficult experience for them because uh, it's so much material. And I think it was like 3 million feet of film that they had to go through. And they, they all this stuff was kind of in a warehouse and didn't really have a full-time person to go through it. They had a wonderful person named Catherine Craig, who was uh, the archivist at the time, but also worked at ILM. Uh, it's sort of her day job, but yeah, she yeah. sort of split duty. Uh, and when they were going into one from the heart, uh, cut, new cut restoration, uh, photochemical restoration and outsiders, uh, the complete novel yep. cut, uh, they, they said, well, we let's, <laughs> let's try to do this again. Let's maybe get someone that can go in and figure out what we need because it to make it easier, make their jobs easier. And so, so I fell into a good time. So it's luck. I fell into it by chance. <laughs> <laughs> Timing is everything. What was that first meeting with Francis like? Were you obviously as a as a fan? Were you nervous? Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I remember the first time seeing Francis. I was in San Francisco, and he was looking at a cut of uh, of, of, of one from the heart. And the guy that uh, hired me was Kim Aubrey, uh, a, a great man that uh, brought me on. Uh, and he he said, "Well, come on, Francis is in town. Why don't you talk to him?" And so that's that was sort of my first introduction to him he says francis this is the guy who's taking over to to look over your library of films so uh, since then i i guess i haven't screwed up too much i've been here almost 20 years <laughs> amazing so what was the first project you worked on was it one from the heart was that kind of already the way it was sort of in channel one from the heart and, and outsiders were both boy, both going on at the same time amazing what well, one, one from the heart i'm like I, i'm not even an apology i'm a massive lover especially of those like uh 80s kind of forgotten Francis films, what like one from the heart being being one of them is kind of beautiful. It, 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 it doesn't get as much love as, as as we'd like, but I mean, I hope that that uh, we will come, we'll do, will we will do a 4K restoration on it, and I think it will look good, especially in HDR with all the neon, the bright. I think it it lends well to to HDR, especially I think Apocalypse cried out for for HDR in some in in some ways, so. There's there's some fun things with to explore with new technology and it, it it's that's been a, a very fun thing for Francis and the company to to, to get involved in. Well, because you dug through the archives, right, to put together the, the the Dream Studio that documentary that kind of I think it came out on that release, right? On one from the heart. That's all Kim Aubrey. Then I helped uh, find all the the extras uh, that went into making that. Yeah, amazing, yeah. amazing. I love that kind of insight into. Yeah, because that again, that kind of the 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 idea of Zoetrope Studios is a, a fascinating story that I absolutely love. Yeah, well, what uh, the great thing of, you know about Francis and the company is that they didn't throw anything away. Francis saw that as something the studios did, but he thought it was very wasteful. Of course, <laughs> it was practical for them because it took up space and it was costing them money. Uh, but Francis said, you know, uh, it's going to cost me if. I had to reshoot that stuff. It's going to cost me some money. I'm going to keep it for historical interest <laughs> and maybe I'll reuse it. And, you know, a lot of the music cues that um, we use in Apocalypse, uh, a lot of the choral music, 
we be reused uh, throughout and sprinkled throughout the uh, many of those other productions. And we've used footage. Um, the uh, stuff that you saw for the Dream Studios, that was all shot on three quarter inch by uh, Tony Scott and Ann Scott at, 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 at that time. Uh, because he, he thought, you know, people for the press or publicity and marketing the film, you need that stuff. You need all that extra stuff, press kits in, in some ways. And so why don't we do it? <laughs> Instead of studios hiring or paying extra, they could hire us to do that. And so he was always very much thinking about that, especially on Apocalypse. You know, Eleanor, his wife, uh, shot a lot of behind the scenes and that later became Hearts of, Hearts of Darkness. Yeah, but yeah, he yeah. always thought at that time, uh, have a crew on set shooting the stuff because you could package that for some other thing. So. Well, yeah, looking through a lot of the kind of uh, DVDs or like whatever releases of of the films, whether it's Francis or uh, Sophia's and Roman's, you always kind of see Eleanor's name pop up. I think it's uh, recently I was watching Marie Antoinette and she kind of, yeah. again, filmed the yeah. kind of behind the scenes stuff of that. And I, I love that kind of uh, family aspect that, that obviously you get you get from American Zoe Trek. What is it like being a part of that kind of, is, is there like a family atmosphere to kind of like getting things done over there? Yeah, I, you know, Roman is very much sort of the, the family documentarian, or Ellie in, in a way also the documentarian. She's always uh, always on set to capture her family's films or Roman's films or Sophia. She would be there capturing from, so that home movie kind of aspect of it, because uh, these were her family films. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, Roman is always uh, very much aware uh, of the archive and wants to make sure that we do preserve it and that it's just not, it's not lost. So he, they, they, they do care about the, the library and because it is, it is for them home movies, you know, so it's, it's their family. Of course. Um, so yeah, with this new release of the outsiders, tell us a bit about what, what it was like putting together this new 4k restoration of the film. Well, with the 4K restoration, you know, and Francis had talked about this in the intro, is that the photography had to be there, you know, mm -hmm. to, to do that. And Stephen Burham's photography is it, 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 phenomenal. It's, it's, uh, it, I, Francis is spoiled. He has some great cinematographers from Vittorio and <laughs> Caleb Dash, Caleb Dashnell and uh, Carol Bell. I mean, uh, and Stephen, um, you know, it, to do, the, his cinematography justice, you really have to go back to the negative. Uh, there's always a bit of a controversy about, you know, making it sure that the uh, what people saw in the theaters. Well, a lot of times when things went into the theaters, it was often due to an inner negative that's three generations away. And the, the things get crushed. Things The image gets crushed. The resolution is not quite there. And you lose a lot of that detail. And it's not necessarily what Francis or 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 Stephen wanted, you know. At, at best, we would rather we would wanted them to see a, a print off the original negative. Mm -hmm. But you know, <laughs> practicality—you don't want all that wear and tear on your negative. You have to go through that intermediate stage uh, to to make thousands of prints. Yeah. So the practicality of it, it's not possible to give you that answer print. But now I think you you can get that uh, that experience that uh, Francis and, and Stephen really wanted. So so they were much of an advocate to go back to the original negative uh, and, and use that to to really highlight and preserve 
that that original information that no one really got to see. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think you see that uh, the Gone with the Winds segments, uh, the clouds, the beautiful sunsets, the rich detail that that sort of got kind of murky or lost as it went through that release printing process. Uh, now is kind of there for everyone to see. There's an amazing special feature on 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 the on the disc that you kind of break down a couple of elements of it, and there's that one of the the flashback sequence of of their parents and stuff like that, and you kind of like it's great to see those um, kind of the different prints of it, whether it was the kind of two thousand like mid two thousands kind of DVD mm -hmm. release or whatever, and yeah, the richness in colors and stuff like that, like. Obviously, having Steve Burham, was, like he was involved, right, with this kind of restoration. He was certainly from day one involved with the, with the color, and you sort of you need that. You, you have to have Francis, and you have to have the artist and cinematographer to bless uh, the material. You know, I'm lucky uh, to have that. Uh, many archives don't have have lost touch. You know, they've passed on, and they don't have that. Um, so I'm lucky. I still have them to guide. Uh, the restorations and what they want and how they want to present the, the films. Uh, so uh, the interesting thing, you know, I've seen some some reviews and I think maybe we've done a poor job uh, uh, highlighting this, but there's a difference between the 1983 color grading versus the 2005 color grading. And it was intentional for Francis, for Stephen, the complete novel is a different film. Yeah. And it was different intent. So you do, if you did side-by-side -side comparisons but, uh, on the 4K release, and he said, well, there is a difference in this scene versus the 83 4K. Why? And maybe they were being sloppy and they didn't carry it over. It's like, no, it's intentional. It's certainly uh, the intent of the 83 release and the original release prints was a more rom romantic, uh, dreamy aspect of the color grading versus in 2005 uh where we chose a score that was contemporary it was more natural so when you look at the skin tones you look at the the brothers it is a very more neutral experience than if you did a side-by-side -side comparison to, to, to 2000 oh, excuse me 1983 the original release and i think that we could have probably done better in marketing in this is that you know when you see these they are two different experiences yeah, yeah, two yeah. different films well, i've heard you mention in uh other interviews that um when obviously you were uh restoring apocalypse now for the kind of 4k release that francis kind of said to you i'm not quite done with that film is was there ever like a, a thing with the outsiders we like we're working on this restoration is francis going to come through the door and say like hey i'm not yeah. quite done with that or was it kind of you knew from day one we can rest easy and kind of just work on this restoration without any tinkering happening no, I think he always in the back of my mind that Francis could come in and say, you know, there was something I wasn't able to do. <laughs> but Outsiders was one he felt that 2005 real that was that was it. He, he because of the novel, yeah, because of what he shot, he felt that was as complete a, as possible. Now, Apocalypse is a as a story that <laughs> you know it, he shot a lot of material, and there's a it, the the script was so dense, uh, and even he didn't know how it was going to cut uh, until he got back from the Philippines. And, and so it was more malleable. It was, it was had, it had ways it could go into different directions. And so the 79 cut came out of the time and in the studio and ha where his mind was at the time, but there was still a lot 
lost that that he thought wasn't appropriate at the time, but after what thirty years, thought eh, not as weird. It's not uh, uh, maybe it could work. Let's try. Uh, let's throw everything in. Uh, but then what? 2019, 2018 comes around. He says, mm, you know, maybe everything in the kitchen sink wasn't quite it. But let's <laughs> try to find something in the middle. So you know, Apocalypse kind of was that film that's right for for that reworking and retelling yeah, yeah. and. It's good. I always I like that. As an archivist, it's not just that we are sit in one. This is it. Francis is very much of the artist to say storytelling is malleable, a thing, and they do change over the years, and that's because audiences change. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, and obviously, whether it's yeah, famously stuff happens with studios, right? Whether it's I don't know or taste change. I know I know one taste of change, yeah. one of the early uh, one, projects you worked on was the Cotton Club encore right when, when, when would that have cotton been? club yes cotton club encore was god what was it we that was a five-year <laughs> journey i think we started in 2011 and ended in 2016 or something like that uh never knowing that we would ever ever see the light of day but he started it and invested his own money to to do it um but thankfully it 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 did did come out in 2016 with a limited theatrical release, uh, but it was a vision of his that, you know, uh, what, what, 1983, 84, uh, that it, uh, he wasn't in control of the film and he had to, he was a work for hire, uh, but he had to make decisions based on what they, they had wanted mm-hmm. at that time. And uh, Robert Evans, it was, it was a, a very difficult uh, project for him at that time. So the decisions were made that wasn't exactly what he, he felt he yeah. wanted to do. They wanted a godfather, you know, and that was <laughs> not his interest. He already made that. Uh, and but for whatever it was, uh, and he will say that, you know, his critiques were too many black people and too many dance numbers. And he was, well, what what the hell is that about? It's it's the cotton club, you know. This is <laughs> yeah, exactly. about an African American experience in, in New York and how else to tell that? Exactly. Uh, so, uh, what? Thirty years later, I, he got the chance to really make the story more even, more balanced, more Maurice Hines and Gregory Hines, and telling that beautiful story between those brothers, uh, and, and that uh, was missing. What What was it that took that project so long to kind of like uh, see start to finish? Was, was it kind of uh, finding some of that like old footage, like? Yeah, we never could. Uh, we're still missing about nine minutes of that negative, and I had to go to um, a daily positive prints, uh, a daily's uh, material to find. Basically, tall, tan, and terrific number is daily's uh, rolls, uh, positive prints that they used, cheap material just for review purpose, and to use it in the work print. And uh, that was all that I could find. I never could find the negative that made those dailies. Uh, and uh, so it's about nine minutes still still missing. They look great. I don't think you could ever tell, or they, thankfully people have been kind enough to say, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they can. But, um, you know, it's a great number to, to have lost over time. And so I'm glad we were able to do. We, and there's all the weird things too, where Lynette McKee's great number of stormy weather, uh, we couldn't, find the quarter inch that they had recorded in the Sherry Netherland um, 
basement uh, where her vocal coach was in the piano, piano doing the number and they were practicing and rehearsing uh, and they would, re would re be recording this so they could have playback on set. Yeah. Well, uh, so we, we have a work print of that a couple of uh, generations away from that quarter inch, never could find that quarter inch, but we have that mono recording. Now that's all we have. And that's all we were able to use because they, they just cut that number uh, pretty early on and they decided never to go into studio uh, to re-record that. So what we have from the basement of that hotel is basically what you, you see in this cut and it works. Uh, it will, I think, you know, people, it, it, I think the number hasn't lost, uh, uh, it, it's not cheapened. It doesn't sound, uh, part, what, what am I trying to say? I guess <laughs> I think I, I'm happy that how it turned out, you know? Amazing. So how are decisions made with you guys of which film is going to get, um, a, a restoration? Is, is it, is it a case of, uh like the outsiders it's an anniversary or, or is there stuff where it's just like i don't know francis gives word and says hey should we revisit this one now or yeah how do those decisions get made well, it's it's luck of the draw it is the numbers <laughs> turning 40 uh certainly outsiders is 40s coming up not yet but um that came out because we we're good friends with uh, Tom Luddy and Kelly Ride, and they wanted to do something in time with an article that came out before COVID, Elena Dunham, and they wanted to, to do it. And they said, well, I said, you know, it, it, it doesn't look great. We have something, but it's not the best. I would, if we have it out at a festival, I would like it looking as best as possible. So COVID kind of gave us an opportunity to go back and, and do it properly. And so it's like, well, we'll do it ahead of the 40th uh, anniversary. And then there's a play coming out for the 40th. So it'd be great to have it looking as best as possible. So, but then, you know, things with Apocalypse, you know, Francis is, it's on his mind. He says, well, I want to go back to it. So things are sitting, noodling around that he, he wants to go back and, 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 and tinker. So we just sort of, you know, as things go, we say, okay, you know, one from the heart's probably going to be the next thing that we, we work on and it just lines up. So. Perfect. Perfect. But I'm running out of films. You know, the library is not huge. So, uh, I can't do things too quickly. Other I'll be out of a job. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I guess. I, well, how does it work with certain films? Because I know that um, a film like Rumblefish, like uh, a yeah. few years ago, got a like a restoration done. Out, w w were you involved Criter in that? Criterion did it. No, I wasn't. Uh, Lee Klein did a fabulous job with his, uh, with his crew at Criterion, and I, we don't see how we could improve on that. They, uh, <laughs> Steven was involved in that, and we did a proper 4K restoration in 2011. We, that was a little early. Um, we weren't quite involved in restorations at that mm -hmm. time. We were just doing them outside at labs uh, that I would oversee. And uh, but it wasn't until Cotton Club that we thought, oh, maybe we sh we should start doing this and looking into it. And the uh, technology certainly was approachable for us to kind of learn. We we've been sitting in sessions uh, long enough to know what we want and we don't want. So amazing, yeah. Because I know that um, uh, recently I well I, I picked up the indicated Blu-ray for Gardens of Stone, and is that one that's owned by Zoe Trope or is that kind no, of no? That would be Sony. Columbia Sony yeah. and good friends with with the people at Sony and. Uh, maybe uh, hopefully one day we 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 will we'll touch that. Is yeah. Is it? Oh. Same with Peggy. He's also with uh, yeah. with them as well. So 
So, and I guess what is it? Next year will be the uh, the fiftieth anniversary of the Godfather, right? Godfather's turning, yes. So we did Godfather uh, Three, which we retitled yeah, yeah. Coda, the Death of Michael Corleone last year. Uh, but next year will be the big year for for Godfather. So Paramount's cooking cooking something up that will be special, and <laughs> I hopefully people will be excited and turn out for. Do, do do you get to be involved in stuff like that, or is it kind of out of your? Yeah, mind? we were we certainly were involved. So you'll hear more about that. But, perfect, uh, perfect. I, I look on for... their on their timing. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Sorry, I'm not I'm not trying not trying to push you, James. Don't worry. No. Isn't that kind well, of well? Certainly, they're not going to miss a good opportunity like the 50th pound. Of course not. Of course, yeah, the, the, no. the the hunger is definitely there from, from the fans. I'll tell you that for sure. Um. So what, yeah, what is the working relationship with your, yourself and Francis and kind of how, how hands-on, how hands-on is he as a boss? Like, well, you know, in the very beginning of the restorations, you know, he, when we did the apocalypse for the Blu-ray, we sat in the color and he, he will say what he wants and what we would spend our time on. And uh, over, over the years, we, we, I sort of grew to understand what, what he cares most about and how he, he would approach it. So, um, I think, you know, when we start the restorations, uh, I, I have in mind what, what he likes and dislikes. And, uh, and it's been very rewarding to have it in-house because we could spend the time on it when we're at a lab. You know, it's, of course, the meter is running and it's more uh, harder on the budget. Uh, so that's the nice thing. And especially I could do things in my living room and, and, and spend the time and weekends and late nights if I, if I want to. Uh, but Francis, you know, at the end, will come in to, to look at the color uh, and we'll say, OK, what where how far more he will want to go clean up or, or for color. And he'll make his notes. So it usually, you know, at this point, we are in a good, good position where we will get we'll tee it up for him. We'll get things to a point. And we'll get it ready to go to a lab and, and we'll bring him in at the end to, to, to see. And usually that's been been good. We we've known him long enough to know you know what, what what how we should present it to him so what what do you think like this might be a weird question but like the job of a like restoring a film is in a way because obviously like there's people have these romanticized ideas of like i don't know seeing films on like the way they saw them originally right whether it's like they might have seen it on like a, a beaten up 35 mil print that kind of got road showed around and like yeah, who who do you have in mind? I guess like when you kind of restore these films, is it kind of how the the director and the DOP might have intended it, or the stuff that they go? I really wanted well, to do this, but I couldn't quite do it. Well, yeah, I'm not. I mean, that's a it's a good point because uh, I I mean the philosophy, and especially in my field, is we're not doing anything that is not true to what people had saw originally. <laughs> with that i mean that's that's a hard thing to achieve because you're never going to get the same speakers <laughs> as people heard the films back then so sound is never going to be quite the same uh are we achieving uh, an experience of a film print that's been roadshowed for a hundred <laughs> screenings you know no <laughs> but you know tarantino loves all that aesthetics the, the scratches and the dirts and the, that that's kind of embedded that's how he experienced it but you know that's not necessarily how either DP or Francis would want people to see. He wants that sort of gets in the way of the story. You have to kind of let go that 
thought for him as an artist, it is about the story, and those things kind of get get in the in way. way. So, wait, uh, there is a balance. Uh, I'm not going to do anything or add anything that wasn't there. Um, you know, for let's for instance, the outsiders. Uh, we 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 went back and found all the opticals, the negative that went to the opticals. That's something they could have done back in '83, but because of at that time, the budget or whatever, uh, they didn't do AV rolls to create those fades and dissolves. They were printed in. Um, but other films like Apocalypse Now, those those weren't printed in. Those uh, they those day fades and dissolves, they created an AV roll because they had the budget. Mm-hmm. And outside, they did. So we felt that France, but now we, we have the ability to do something that they could have done then, but chose not to do it because of that ec- ec- economics. So I don't feel that's something that's unnatural. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were certainly not doing effects uh, that computer effects that uh, or visual effects that we are creating that wasn't able to do at that time. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, it's, it is a bit of a discussion I, I, uh, <laughs> for us of how far we go, but I try to at least have balance that out that we're creating that experience as if it was the a, a print off the uh, original negative for the, for, for the first time, looking probably a little bit better than anyone has ever seen it or then saw it there. But, yeah, you know, exactly. that's, Sort of our discussion of where it's appropriate and well, all. So. I guess it's that thing a lot of the time for people. It's it's how and when they saw a film that kind of that is the thing that they're kind of grasping onto, not not I, necessarily the kind of the, the and rightfully so. Those are the fans, <laughs> and they grew up with it, and they got the the look. I don't think anyone's really ever heart. Maybe there's a few uh, uh, people that still want that look of a VHS, but I I don't think people are. <laughs> but you know they're not that sentimental of it but they are (laughs) with with film and i i get that you know i'm not one to remove that the film grain i very much like outsiders i did no grain management Mm -hmm. and i think we've been awarded uh rewarded with the comments people have noticed it and it's never oh it's never gotten the way well you know a lot of other there's different philosophies and other places and they do want uh those that stripped out or dialed down and i i feel that's that's a red line or something I don't cross because I, I, I don't want to erase that film aesthetic. It was definitely a, it's got a beautiful aesthetic, like the, uh, and and I think it does come back down to yeah, like the 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 photography from Stephen Burham, and it kind of feels like what you've guys done with, with this restoration is just honoured that. I know the your colorist on uh, the special feature talks about the fact that. There's slight tweaks or something like the the blood on that scene when Johnny Cade kills Leif Garrett's character, but that is that that is kind of signed off by Steve Burham himself, right? It's kind of we wanted to, or like, or, or like you were saying about like the kind of the dissolves and the fades. It's like that thing of that the technology wasn't quite there to make it as punchy as they originally intended, right? Well, I mean, it wasn't as punchy because they they layered and made a, a dupe negative that had all the yeah. stuff crunched together. But now now we could scan it separately and relayer it, and you're not losing that. And that's kind of what Stephen Burham, you know, it was it was beautiful, but it lost something during that release. It was four generation, four or five generations, I'm guessing, but uh, away. And so it sort of crushed it, made it milkier. You sort of lost uh, a resolution, and here you kind of. You 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 preserve his original photography in that that uh, it, it makes it on par with the rest of the of the negative. So 
So what, I think especially when it's important when you go in a fourth game because yeah. you can notice those differences. You know, when we saw the first DVD, you don't notice those differences so mm-hmm. so much. But if you go from original negative of 4K to some dupe, you do see a shift uh, between. It's not cutting well, mm-hmm. and so you don't want you don't want people to be taken out of of the story. It's not a Brechtian experience. <laughs> you need to. Uh, you, you shouldn't be able to take it be taken out of the story. Definitely, definitely. So. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely. I I always. Um have those moments with like stuff when it's kind of restored onto a uh, higher resolution. And I'm not going to name films, but you kind of, there are certain films where you're like, are oh, they very much fit the time they were made and the kind of quality of, of presentation that they had, because all of a sudden you start seeing some glaring errors once you kind of uh, boost up to like a 4k restoration. Yeah. Or do you know what I mean? well, <laughs> and this is, this is a problem that I know I've worked at like, uh, another when we did a film it was a concern when you do older titles and you're going to project it on a larger a larger screen are those effects going to hold up and, mm-hmm. and a lot of times they don't thankfully apocalypse now wasn't a heavy visual effects yes film. they are all practical effects and thankfully we haven't had that that problem but a lot of visual effects films from that era do sort of fall apart mm-hmm. and yeah i I, I wouldn't ever try to correct that digitally <laughs> to make it better, but um, that's just you know that's a discussion I can we we'll have with, with with our artists. So, but I I'm never comfortable. I sh- I shouldn't be the one making those decisions. It's the artist to do it, and you know, and I, I something to say is that you know that's kind of why it's been nice to have these separate versions: the complete novel or Redux or Final Cut is that they allow them to explore doing something different. There is a different presentation. You know, we'll offer the original cut as it was back in, in, in with the first release. But, you know, when I do a restore, I, I, don't, I don't know if restoring is the right world, but I call these things a, a, a new presentation. I rather use the word presentation because it allows, it affords the ability for instance, to, to go out and present something uh, in, in a different way, in a new light to, to hopefully find a new audience. You definitely, know? definitely. It's great to look at one part and appease, we need to appease and not forget our fans because they made these films special. And that's why we're here today uh, appreciating these films because they've, they've, they've held a candle to say these films should, shouldn't be forgotten. But we, we, we need to keep finding a new audience so it continues to find a new life well beyond us. Definitely. It never feels... There's sometimes in, with like restorations or kind of like new releases that feel... I don't know. There's a, there could be a cynical edge to it with these kind of restorations you can tell that there's uh love and attention gone into it and it's kind of doing yeah. right by the artists do you know what i mean yeah well there is about ba- uh, a balance you know fans are great and they can be very uh, opinionated rightfully so <laughs> uh and, and it's hard it's hard if there's ever changes or drastic changes because it's not it doesn't live up to, to their experience and that so i i at least want to be faithful to Try to obtain their experience, but also offer something that uh, you know a, a new generation doesn't know. Film brain, and yes, exactly. you sort of have to re-educate people why that's sort of important, and, and a lot of people won't care. We're dying out. The people who love film, that aesthetic of film, you know, thankfully Tarantino and Nolan's out there highlighting what 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 why film and still shooting on films. But you know, we we are I don't like to say we're kind of a niche. <laughs> film enthusiasts but there's more and more people get 
they don't know what film is yes. or film grain is. And so you have to, it looks weird to them. It looks wrong. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. They're, they're seeing something on their digital uh, TV and streaming. It looks pristine and sharp and clear. And like, you know, it, it's, it's never going for us. Our films are never going to look like that. Yes. And, and so. <laughs> so um, was there a difference between like working on a project over lockdown and kind of you said it obviously afforded you more time but did your kind of workflow change at all or was it kind of a lot more freeing to kind of go oh, we've got this time and i could go as you said you can kind of work at home did, did i think we yeah i think we were covid ready uh <laughs> we were already working from our home my had a workstation i have my editor who works in his home in the in the central valley modesto and uh we we were ready i what a i think we were we had a good setup already established and then when lockdown happened uh it was hard for other studios to get work done uh so the studios i worked they, they couldn't go to uh, china or, the, or india because they they were also experienced lockdowns and the, the the places with the studios that they were working with they couldn't get cleanup so we picked up some extra work for that because we we were continuing to do it uh, um we're not as fast as those facilities. We're just <laughs> two two people, but we were able to keep the machine going and and uh, thankfully able to 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 help out on other projects. Beautiful. It sounds like you're very much there, like Tucker doing stuff in his in his kitchen building cars. So it's uh, it's good to that hear. Is, <laughs> that is the zoetrope experience. You're a very a homegrown studio, and you know we don't have all the the fancy gadgets at all, but we we make it work. Yeah, I always remember there's a, a great a great story of like the original kind of um, Zoetrope Studios that, that Francis and George Lucas kind of set up. And the, the one thing that made it special to lots of people was the fact that they had a cappuccino machine. And it's that thing, of, as long as you've got a cappuccino machine, you can get a film made. That, that machine, and that's still around. Actually, <laughs> uh, I went over to the Skywalker Ranch, uh, where George's facility over is uh, in, in the North Bay here. And that's sort of a proud moment. People who know, they they once tried to replace that machine, that cappuccino machine. It was given to them at, at, at Tucker when they worked on Tucker, and Francis gave it to them. And uh, they decided the new administration came in and wanted to take it out and put a, a machine that you know, just push a button and out. Yeah. And they, people were like, wait a second, where's the old cappuccino, the espresso machine? <laughs> oh, we were going to get rid of it. And they said, no, no, that makes great coffee. And so they had it, they brought it back in, they put a special place in the kitchen for it and got new plumbing for it and all. It's still there. Perfect. <laughs> so, Perfect. It has a little plaque on it that says, from Zoetrope Studios. Amazing. That 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 yeah. that thing is a part of uh, cinema history, so I'm glad yeah. to hear it's doing okay. Um, <laughs> so obviously yeah. you've, you've yeah, you've been in rooms with Francis Ford Coppola, I imagine like Walter Murch. Have you, is there moments when you've kind of like almost had to pinch yourself being like as a film fan and kind of especially this, like this localized thing, these kind of Bay Area legends. Are there certain moments where you've gone, what, what am I doing here? Uh, certainly. And I, I certainly have learned to just shut up and listen because uh, <laughs> when they're talking, you know, you, you're, you're, you're certainly learning. And I, that's why I was trying to be the fly on the wall and, uh, and absorb uh, what they're, what they're saying and doing because it, it is a special, Walter's Walter is brilliant. And uh, it's so wonderful. 
what's great about Walter is not just a, a film experience and all of what he's doing. He has such a great knowledge about the universe and, and he connect, he sees connections around and, 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 and things going on around him. And uh, he'll, he tries to connect that with his his work, and I always enjoy just sitting and, and listening to these these guys. Uh, and I I always feel uh, I mean out, out of my depth because I'm not that in, in, intellectual. <laughs> and I, I always feel I'm I kind of dumb, <laughs> you know. And I just wish I was bad, but I just I, I'm just feel I'm honored to be at at that table and and just listening to to, to what these guys' experiences are and and what what inspires them. Is there any like words of wisdom or kind of lessons you've learned that, that you'd be willing to share? I think I just said it, just shut up and listen. Just shut up and listen. No, <laughs> the, yeah, I, I, I obviously didn't learn that lesson when you said it. Uh, what, what a fool. <laughs> that is something I will definitely uh, take on moving forward. Amazing. So um, what, yeah, what, what kind of stuff are you, are you working on at the moment? Or is it all kind of hush hush at the moment? What, I don't know. I, no, I, Different. I, I'm going to work on one from the heart eventually that will get around. I mean, my library is so small, you could probably guess what I'll be <laughs> doing. And I have by the gut what I haven't done. Um, you know, so you'll see, of course, we have the, the 50th. We've alluded to that. And I, one from the heart will be special to us. I think we'll do. But, you know, there's still, we still have a few things in, in yeah. the, the archive that we have yet to touch. And I, we will get around to it. Will, will that, um, I know that just before, covid happened there was supposed to be a kind of um like the the conversation was supposed to hit the road right it was a, a new 35 mil yes print. with a, this we made two 35 millimeter prints uh it was a photochemical restoration we did back in uh when i first started i want to say around 2002 and it was about 2002 we made new intermediates at that time it had never been shown uh and we were supposed to go with rialto uh but well, for whatever reason, the deals never got done, and you just sat and languished in the vault forever. So now we're getting, or we were getting ready, and we made the deal with Rialto to go back and and, and release uh, a print from from that effort. Um, of course, it's almost twenty years uh, that no one's seen those prints. It's new thirty-five millimeter prints of restored film elements. Um, but eventually, we we're going to have to do a proper four K digital restoration of it. Uh, I think. There are two different efforts, one from the photochemical world and one will be from the digital world. So Perfect. So do you ever, like, worry that you've got to keep keeping up? Because obviously, like, imagine in, like, 20 years, like, kind of we've seen the advent of Blu-ray. Like, yeah, it was, like, early DVD then. We've had the advent of Blu-ray now. It's 4K. Where, where do you see that going? Or are you kind of, like, going to coast for yeah a while i know my, my wife always says she catches me she says, oh, you know you always say we're we're in a good leg but then we redo it you know it's like didn't we say that at blu-ray that we were <laughs> done but you know i think with 4k you kind of hit a plateau uh if you you look at um i think we, we did on apocalypse now the 40 years of uh home video releases from the ced disc to this dvds and the jumps in, in quality that was made in home videos are now starting to kind of plateau on just the general. I think a ge the general audience can see the difference between VHS to DVD. Yes. <laughs> and that was a huge jump. Uh, and, and then DVD to Blu-ray kind of picked it up a little bit better. But now you're kind of getting leveling off and those differences are, are, are kind of the general audience are kind of like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. see it other than 
us crazy people who, who <laughs> love it. But I mean, after 4K, I just don't see see what that they're going to see detail that no one ever saw. I, I remember seeing in a, in a lecture advocating doing 8K or higher scans, 10K, 12K, whatever. And the difference in the shine of a necklace, a pearl, no one ever thought yeah, yeah. it. Was never, <laughs> never there. And even the answer for it, that was lost. So I don't know how much in the weeds we, we need to go. I, I think we're at a very good point in, in technology that this is, if this is it, I, I'm very proud of, of this work that both theatrical and the home video experiences kind of got to that a good level to preserve the quality that had been lost in home video over so many years. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, James. This has been, it's been a great insight into the dream studio that is American Zoetrope. And uh, yeah. Yeah, this, this, this I, I'm happy to talk. As you can say, I said, shut up and, and listen, but it gets hard to do in a podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully I didn't blab too much. No, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I said it at the beginning and I'm going to say it again. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, James. Well, thank you very much. Well, there we have it, guys. That was my conversation with James Makoski. I hope it was uh, as informative and uh, a joy to listen to as it was for me to have that conversation. I, I really, I really love this, and I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed that the people who speak to me speak to me. And it was an absolute honour to have James on. And uh, yeah, do do be sure to check out all the stuff he's he's doing with American Zootrope. And we're kind of like, um, I don't know, like. The, it doesn't feel cynical what they're doing over there. Well, we kind of touched on it in the episode, and it might sound a bit sycophantic, but it doesn't feel like they're just they they they, they really want to share these films with people. It's not just being like, oh, there's a new format, let's cash in, which I know can often feel like the case sometimes when you get like, oh, it's a VHS release, it's a DVD release, it's a Blu-ray, it's 4K, it's 8K, it's beamed into your eyeballs through through modern technology that doesn't exist yet but i'm sure will exist when our robot overlords come to take over a massive apology to anyone who was uh looking forward to this episode and the fact that it's late uh i've just not been a very well boy uh, lately I've, I've i've been feeling a bit uh ill so yeah s sorry about that but it's, it's here now it's only a few days late uh and yeah very much hope that you, you you enjoyed it so uh as for next week well yeah as for the next episode on the podcast it will be my conversation with charlie vero martin all about the jason no the john schwartzman not jason jason has nothing to do with this film it's the john schwartzman lens no it's not even that so it is uh the uh first in a triple bill chats of the 50 shades of gray films starting obviously with 50 shades of gray um and there is no copa connection with this film but it felt like we needed to talk about the first one before we got on to the second two which are lensed by john schwartzman not jason 
So um, it was a lot of fun. And I think you guys are going to have a lot of fun with this one. So do check out that one next week because, oh boy, we get steamy. We get hot. We get sexy. And we also get put through a lot of pain when we talk about Fifty Shades of Grey. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't hesitate to support by heading over to Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash caged in pod, where you can, um, yeah, just for £2.50 a month, you can get access to the brand new Movie Brat Bros series, which I'll be looking at the films of Brian De Palma and seeing how they compare to the films of Francis Ford Coppola in the given year that they were released. Or you can head on over to coffee.com, so it's ko-fi.com, forward slash Cajun pod, and just buy me a digital cup of coffee. So I like them digital cups of coffee. They really keep me nourished and full, and that would be bloody lovely. Or... You can always head on over to Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now and leave a sterling five-star rating and a little review. Tell me what you think about the podcast. Tell me what your answer is to what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation. I would love to know your answers. So as always, I have been Petrus Pat Syllabus your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. Remember to keep it caged in and I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Town Limery, Maine, Franchise, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.